Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Come and see. used to listen to CKY in the Black Hawk, back in Afghanistan. Those were the words that I first heard when I returned to the town I grew up in. I had just arrived, and I stood in a crowded bar, full of people I had known since my youth but hadn't seen in years, and I heard somebody say, loudly, to somebody else, We used to listen to CKY in the Black Hawk, back in Afghanistan. Those words brought me back home, and the flood of memories that came with them were hard to comprehend as I stood there, in the dim but painfully loud dive bar. I was surrounded by faces that I knew, places I had been, things I hadn't thought about in many, many years. After graduating high school and leaving that place, you could say I tried to become willfully unaware of the years I had spent there. I tried to block things out, tried to suppress them, forget them, strike the images from the record that is my memory. Did it work? I don't know. For the last decade or so, I haven't thought much about my upbringing. Once I'd moved away from that little town in eastern Utah, I'd managed to fill my head with other things. A girlfriend. A house. A loyal dog. A tree-lined path where I go walking at the beach. But all of that was pushed aside when I walked into a bar and overheard a comment about listening to CKY in a helicopter in Afghanistan. It sparked a deluge of memories though the memories themselves had nothing to do with the post-grunge band CKY, or with Black Hawk helicopters, or even with the war in the Middle East. The comment itself was merely a catalyst. It was a simple series of words that brought me back to a time, some years ago, when I tried fervently to bury my past. And now, bit by bit, the memories were being unearthed. Some of them were mundane. Some were joyful, excited even. But there were others that were not so easy for me to comprehend. 
I didn't know how to look at them, or what events from my past they corresponded with. They were jarring things, half-lit screenshots that danced in the periphery of my consciousness. Even as I tried to fix my concentration on them, they slipped out of reach, refusing to fully reveal themselves to me. They were like the disappearing remnants of a dream, and then they were gone. I stayed at the bar for about an hour. I had a few drinks, exchanged a few lines of dialogue with old acquaintances, and then I went home to all the ghosts that were waiting there for me. It was an eerie affair being back in my childhood home. The long, narrow hallways echoed the sounds of my lonely footsteps as I walked from room to empty room. The eeriness came not only because I was back there, trying to remember things I had long forgotten, but also because of the circumstances that led to my return. The thing that had called me back there was the disappearance of my father. I first realized something was wrong when my father's answering machine changed. Callers were no longer greeted with his dry, grainy voice, telling them he's sorry he missed them, and that if they leave a message, he'll get back to them shortly. Instead, the voice of a monotonous operator simply read out the digits of his phone number, then prompted the caller to record a message after the beep. It struck me as odd, and immediately made me wonder if my father was trying to conceal his identity from somebody. When he failed to return my voicemail, I tried him again. This time, the robotic operator voice simply explained that his phone had been disconnected. Beginning to worry, I phoned my father's best and arguably only friend, a man he had met in the army by the name of Lars. Lars would tell me only that my father had to go away for a while, and that he was under some scrutiny. He then told me that before leaving, my father had requested I watch over his house until he returns. I prodded for more information, but Lars would say nothing else. As I drove back home to eastern Utah, my father's unexplained absence was all I could think about. And now that I was back there, the situation seemed even more bizarre. What had my father done? He was under some scrutiny, Lars had told me. But what did that mean? Had he committed a crime? Was he on the run from the law? And how long would I need to be there, watching over his quiet, empty house? Laying there that first night, trying to fall asleep, I fleetingly wondered if my father wasn't coming back at all. What if he was dead? What if Lars had lied to me? I suppose there were ways of finding out. I could call some local hospitals and police stations the following day. Perhaps someone there would have record of him. But when the next day came, and the police station, and then later the hospital, both said they had no record of my father, I was perplexed. The sheriff said there was no warrant out for his arrest, nor had he spent any time in jail. He then asked if I'd like to fill out a missing persons report. I told him that I did, and even shared my suspicion that his friend Lars knew more than he was letting on, 
At the hospital, they said there was no record of my father's admission. Ever. I told them they were mistaken, because he had been to that hospital. Not two years before, when he'd undergone surgery. I remember him calling me and telling me about the procedure. But the receptionist insisted that his name appeared nowhere in their system. In the end, she could say only that she would continue searching for his records, and that she would call me if she found anything. When I hung up the phone, I sat at the kitchen table over a cup of stale black coffee. I dug through my memories, trying to find something that would explain my father's vanishing. But there was nothing there. All my memories of my dad were vague and inaccessible. One of the only clear memories I had of him took place when I was maybe eight years old. I was sitting at my desk in my childhood bedroom. I was facing the wall, but I could sense that my father was standing behind me. I could feel his presence, his anger. It was radiating off him like the heat of the sun. And then I heard him say, it's about your integrity, son. Your integrity is very important. Those ten words were seared into my memory. But I don't know why. I don't know what my father was referring to when he spoke them, or why he even thought them necessary to say. I only know that unlike my other memories of my father, this recollection isn't fuzzy or dreamlike. It's clear as day. And every time I reflect on it, I can still feel the desperation and fear that surged through me as I heard my father speak those words. It's about your integrity, son. Your integrity is very important. After making the mistake of allowing that memory back into my mind, I became quickly and uncharacteristically convinced that it held the key to something. I was certain that the memory contained an explanation of some kind. Perhaps not an explanation of my present situation, but an explanation of my father, of who he was as a person. And suddenly, I felt a strange spasm from within my chest, an anxious revulsion, as if there was something within me that didn't want me to explore the memory, a lurking fear that if I opened that door, I would be unable to close it, to again forget the hidden meaning that lay behind the veil. So I reached for something familiar. I picked up my phone and dialed Melissa, my girlfriend back in Oregon. Just the sound of her voice was enough to quell the racing of my heart. I filled her in on what had come to pass since I'd returned home. Naturally, she was just as disturbed by the events as I was. And after hearing me out, she made me promise that I would stay there no longer than a week, that after seven days I would return home to her, whether or not my father had reappeared. After a brief hesitation, I agreed. But while the obligation I had to Melissa was far greater than any obligation I had to my father, I still had to force myself to accept her request. I hadn't seen my father in years. We'd hardly spoken since I left Utah. I didn't owe him anything. And yet, I felt an inexplicable sense of duty to remain in that house until his safe return. As if by being there, 
I was fulfilling a cryptic promise I had made to him in the past. As if, somehow, he had known that day would come. The following morning, I tried Lars again, but now his phone was disconnected as well. I tried the hospital and the police station, making a special point of asking if they were able to follow up with Lars. They told me that they were not only unable to reach him, but that they could find no record of a man named Lars that lived in that area. I slammed the phone into the cradle, feeling a petrified mania come over me. I was teetering on the verge of a mental breakdown. Any faith I had in the reality of my situation had eroded away, leaving me paranoid, questioning the true reason I had been called back to that place. Having no outlet for my fear and aggravation, I tried to find an occupation for my trembling hands, something that would keep them busy, something that would take my mind off the impossible parameters of my situation. Soon enough, I found myself cleaning. The thoughtless exercise of wiping dust from the surfaces of my father's home began to dull my spiraling thoughts. And when the counters had been relieved of their thick layers of dust, I took to the kitchen. I cleaned dishes and utensils that still showed the remains of meals eaten long ago. I vacuumed. I organized clutter. The chores occupied my mind while a layer of sweat accumulated on my forehead. When the house was finally clean and I was exhausted, I poured myself a few fingers of whiskey from an ancient bottle. I sat down in the shower, taking slow sips from the glass, while hot water ran over my filthy skin. Soon I was clean and drunk and tired, and I allowed my eyes to fall closed. I was awoken in the early morning hours by another spasm from within my chest. This time, though, it wasn't only a spasm. For a brief moment upon waking, I thought I could hear something, a sound, emanating from within my body. It was a low hiss, followed by a series of clicks. I tore away the bedsheets and pressed my palms against my chest, feeling for movement while I strained to make out the sound. But it had stopped. The only thing I could detect beneath my skin was the jumpy beat of my heart and the stuttered rise and fall of my breath. Surely it was nothing more than the remnants of a dream, I told myself. The sound I thought I'd heard was just one of those sensations you feel in the twilight hour, when the bitter end of a dream lapses into the waking mind. But dream or not, it still left me feeling anxious. The eerily mechanical sound echoed through my mind. Hiss. And since there was no more cleaning left to be done in the house, I poured myself a cup of coffee and stumbled outside to my father's neglected garden. There, I was greeted by waist-high tangles of weeds, a spotty, unkempt lawn, and the skeletons of dead trees. It was a narrow half-acre of land, and from the looks of it, it hadn't been tended to in well over a year. I was stricken by how unfamiliar it looked. Sure, it had been years since I'd seen the yard, 
and it probably looked nothing like it did when I was a child. But still, I expected something in the narrow strip of land to call out to me. A depression where I'd played with my toy soldiers, or a tree from which I'd hung a tire swing. But no such memory could be anchored in that place. I felt like I was seeing it for the first time. Before my mind could take the ideas and run with them, I gripped a handful of weeds and tugged them out of the ground. Idle hands, I told myself, tearing another dead shrub free from the dry earth. And soon I settled into a routine. My hands were busy and my mind was quiet. And that was all I wanted. When sundown came, I'd finished pulling all the weeds before moving on to raking up fallen leaves and debris and finally mowing the lawn. I stood outside the back door under the glow of the porch light, indulging in another glass of whiskey and gazing out at the yard. I was somewhat unsettled to find that even after the day's work, the yard still didn't look at all familiar. And with five days left before I'd promised to return home to Melissa, I decided to spend the rest of my time there planting bushes and vegetables, flowers and perhaps even a few small fruit trees. Maybe then I would see something familiar in the property where I'd grown up. And more importantly, I would keep my mind occupied, focusing on the task at hand instead of speculating on the unknown fate of my father. At first light, I set off for a local nursery. There I picked out a few tomato plants, some ornamental grasses, a half dozen rose bushes, and a Chinese apricot tree. I heaved a few bags of fertilizer and mulch into the cart as well, before starting to make my way to the checkout stand. On my way, I looked at a wall of shovels. I wasn't sure why. I knew there was a perfectly usable shovel back at the house. But something drew my eyes to the shovels, something that remained obscured from my conscious mind. As I stood there, temporarily frozen, a nursery attendant approached me. Need help picking one out? he asked, hefting a shovel off the wall and inspecting it. Just as he did, I realized what it was that was suspending me there. The memory streaked through my mind, like a great shining comet, lighting up the night sky as it sailed through the cosmos. I was a child, maybe nine years old. I was getting ready for bed when I heard a door open and then slam shut. I tiptoed through the house to the back door and peeked outside, where I saw my father descending the porch steps with a spade-tipped shovel in his hand. My curiosity got the better of me, and I slowly pushed the door open, exposing myself to the cold night air. What are you doing, Dad? I asked. My father turned slowly. He looked down at the shovel in his hand and then back at me. I'm gonna go dig Lazarus out of the grave, he said, in a dry, barely there voice. My father's eyes stayed fixed on me for another moment, their glossy texture almost seeming to glow in the darkness. And then, without another word, he turned and walked off into the night. Hey man, are you okay? The nursery attendant was saying. I briefly wondered how long I'd been standing there, transfixed by the memory. Yes, I'm fine, I said, 
before walking off to the checkout stand. When I got back to the house, I began laying out the plants, scattering them throughout the yard in the spots where I thought they would get enough sun. After lunch, I grabbed the shovel and started digging. I began with the plants nearest to the house, a few rose bushes and some pampas grass, slowly working my way towards the perimeter of the yard. Sweat poured out of me as I dug, and the salty liquid felt like salvation on my skin. The work consumed me, occupying all the space in my mind. It left no room for suspicion or worry. Soon the sun began to slip behind the Uinta Mountains, and the yard was again shrouded in darkness. I leaned the shovel against the fence, wiping the dirt and sweat from my brow, before walking up the porch steps and into my father's empty house. That night, as I laid my tired body down in bed, I listened to distant creaks and shifts, hums and muted clicks. I tried to tell myself that these were just the sounds an old house made, but my hypersensitive ears seemed to suspect that they came from somewhere else. And as I descended into sleep, I dragged my fingers across my torso, feeling for vibrations, for movement, feeling for the source of something that existed beneath my skin. After breakfast the following morning, I returned to my work, punching the sheer lip of the shovel through the surface of the soil, excavating the dirt and leaving it in neat piles. I became accustomed to hitting rocks and roots, feeling the shovel's handle vibrate dully as it collided with the hard surface of things buried beneath the ground. But on my fourth or fifth hole of the day, I felt a different sensation as I plunged the shovel head into the soil. It wasn't a clunk or a thump, but a clean, brittle snap. Curious, I laid the shovel down and got to my knees, digging my fingers through the freshly uprooted soil searching for whatever the shovel had hit. After a few seconds, my hands found something vaguely cylindrical, something dry and smooth, and I lifted it out of the ground to inspect it. I knew immediately I was looking at a bone, though it was unlike any bone I'd ever seen. The shovel had broken it into two pieces, and when placed together, the bone was roughly a foot long. I guessed it was a leg bone, and I had to be honest with myself in surmising that it might have been human. Although, given my limited experience identifying the parts of a skeleton, it could have easily come from an animal as well. But it wasn't the size or the origin of the bone that I found so peculiar. It was the fact that at one end, where the bone terminated into a joint, there was a large growth protruding from it. I wondered at first if the growth might have been a cancerous tumor of some kind, but after cleaning the dirt off its surface to get a better look at it, I could see that it resembled no cancer or tumor I had ever seen. The growth was crystalline in its structure, smooth and sharp at the edges. It was nearly transparent in some areas, reminding me of a geode. It was like a bizarre miniature obelisk protruding from the surface of an otherwise normal-looking bone. I was equally fascinated by it and terrified of it. 
I wondered if the crystalline shape had been fused with the bone at some point after the death of whatever creature it had come from. But the joint was smooth and seamless, suggesting that whatever it was, it had grown organically out of the bone itself. Not knowing what else to do, I eventually set the bone down, walked inside, and took a long pull from the whiskey bottle I had found in my father's kitchen cabinet. Then, with shaking hands, I returned to the yard. I began to dig again, though it was no longer my intention to plant anything. Now I was only excavating, only unburying the past. As I thrust the shovel into the ground, I could hear my father's words in my head. I'm going to go dig Lazarus out of the grave, he had said. I dug sporadically in the surrounding area, waiting to again hear the brittle snap of a bone under the head of the shovel. Again and again, the shovel sunk into the ground. And then I heard it, a crack that echoed up through my feet, resonating at a point deep inside my chest. I fell to my knees, pawing at the soil. This time, the bone was small, appearing to originate from a hand or a foot. Like the other bone, it had a strange growth protruding from its surface. But unlike the other bone, it wasn't crystalline. This growth was some kind of rusted metal, sprouting directly out of the bone's tip, as if it were meant to extend the length of a finger or a toe. I again wondered if it was man-made. Perhaps, I postulated, it was the result of some kind of surgical procedure, like a pin or a bolt that's attached to a bone to fix its position while it heals from a break. But here too, the place where bone and metal came together looked somehow organic. In fact, I couldn't tell precisely where bone ended and metal began. They seemed to bleed into each other, as if the monstrosity I held in my hand was the result of a normal biological process. I continued to dig, the palms of my hands blistering against the splintered wooden handle of the shovel. The shovel head rang as I forced it down on buried rocks and dust collected, forming a film on my cold, sweaty skin. The sun had long since descended when I dug up the final bone. It was full dark, and I was working by lantern light when I found it. The sight of it, even before I had dug it out of the ground and held it in my hands, made me shiver and cast a wave of nausea over me. The first two bones may have come from any number of animals, allowing me to suspend my fears of their actual source. But the final bone... I knew exactly where the final bone had come from. Its smooth surface, its curvature, laying half buried in the ground, shining under a canopy of stars. It was undeniably human. It was a skull. My trembling hands scooped out the dirt that surrounded it. I lifted it and watched soil fall away, revealing a visage that provoked unimaginable dread. Heavy and cumbersome, it had growths both inside the skull cavity and protruding from its exterior. The ones on the inside glowed in an array of opal colors. They looked like jagged little spikes of lightning, 
captured in a moment as they erupted into someone's brain. On the outside, the growths had disfigured the face. Sharp and lopsided, the crystal and metal protrusions sprouted from the brow, the cheeks, the jaw. One of the eye sockets was almost entirely filled with serrated crystalline structures. I dropped the skull, heard a vaguely metallic clunk as it struck the earth. Too terrified even to think, my feeble legs carried me into the house. I crawled up the stairs and dragged myself into bed, where I lay, curled up and trembling. A kind of paralysis made it impossible for me to do anything else. I remember hearing once that one of the symptoms of depression is something called psychomotor retardation. It's a condition in which one's physical movements and even thoughts become arrested, halting their ability to complete simple tasks. That was exactly how I felt as I lay there. I couldn't even conceive of doing something like picking up the phone or taking a shower. I was stuck, held down by shock and fear. The room in which I lay was pitch black, the only illumination a thin strip of moonlight leaking in through the window. With my eyes open, I could see little more than I could when they were closed. I intermittently held my breath, trying to compose my body in silent stillness, waiting to hear that terrible sound emanate from my chest again. I had no idea how long I'd been laying there. At one point, I opened my eyes and became vaguely suspicious that somebody was in the room with me. I felt like I could just make out a vague, human-shaped shadow in the corner of the room. Dark as it was, I couldn't tell by sight alone if anyone was really there. The shape I had fixed my eyes on seemed at once to be a man, but in the muddy blackness, I couldn't make out enough detail to be sure. Is someone there? I whispered into the dark room. I waited for a response, but there was only silence. Dad, is that you? I tried. A dry, cracking voice filled the room. Come and see, I heard my father say. But I couldn't. I couldn't stand the thought of seeing my father, or anything he had to show me. I held my eyes tightly shut. Come and see, I heard him say again, though his voice did not sound entirely like his own. There was an added texture to the sound, something that almost made it seem like a recreation, a recording. Still, I refused to open my eyes. I lay there, paralyzed, until a sound broke the silence. It at first sounded like footsteps resonating through my body as the hard soles clapped against the wooden floor. But it wasn't footsteps. The repeating clack I heard wasn't just reverberating through my body. It was arising from within me. Hiss. Click. 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 My ribcage vibrated with the noise as it repeated its cycle, seeming to grow louder with each repetition. When the sun finally crested the horizon, filling the room with light, the sound had become almost intolerable. I became certain that if I lay there for another moment, I would die in that bed. And so I squirmed out from beneath the sheets and slowly got to my feet, 
I stood for several minutes, examining my chest in the bathroom mirror. I pulled and prodded at the skin until my ribcage was tender and red. Still, the sound persisted. The hissing and clicking rattled off from somewhere deep inside me, as if my body was host to a bizarre clockwork mechanism. I shuffled outside to my car, still wearing the dirty clothes in which I had been digging the day before. I drove around the small town aimlessly, nearly losing consciousness at several points, before a sign finally pointed me in the direction of the hospital. I parked my car shoddily in the nearly empty parking lot and dragged myself into the small emergency room. After attempting to fill out the necessary paperwork, a kindly but somewhat frightened-looking nurse saw me into a private room. When the doctor arrived, I informed him of my condition, explaining in detail the sounds I'd heard coming from my chest. I could still hear them, but they were quieter than they'd been an hour before. I considered telling him about the bones I'd uncovered in my father's backyard as well, but ultimately thought that matter would be best saved for the police. The doctor, a tall slim man with a shiny bald head, listened patiently as I spoke. When I finished, he pressed the diaphragm of his stethoscope against my chest and listened deeply. After a few minutes, he pulled it away at which point he asked me a series of questions about my sleep cycle and my stress levels. You didn't hear it, did you? I asked. He held his hands up defensively, as if to say, it's not that I don't believe you. What about an x-ray? I politely insisted. But he told me the x-ray machine wasn't working that day. When he realized I wasn't going to simply let the matter go, he told me he was going to get the phone number of a specialist I could see, and would return shortly. When he left the room, I grabbed his stethoscope, coiling it tightly before forcing it into my pocket. And then I walked back out to my car, without saying another word to anyone. Back at the house, I stood for a minute in the backyard, looking down at the small collection of mutant bones. The sound in my chest began to surge again. I thought about the childhood I couldn't remember, the impossible contorted memories I had of my father, the things I saw him doing that could never be explained, the things he showed me. A dark room, pale eyes, come and see, the lantern in his hand casting light on something that could not exactly be called human. I struggled my way up the porch steps and in the back door of the house. My father's words echoed inside my head. It's about your integrity, son. Your integrity is very important. I pulled myself up the stairs, listening to the cyclical noise that rang out inside of me. In the bathroom, I pulled off my shirt staring deep into the contours of my narrow chest. Inside the medicine cabinet, I found a straight razor with a smooth mahogany handle. I doused it with whiskey and then poured the rest of the bottle down my chest. From my pocket, I pulled the stethoscope I'd taken from the hospital. I listened through the earpiece as I slid the diaphragm across my chest, trying to find the spot where the sound came through clearest. I could hear it growing inside me. For a moment, I felt as though I understood 
I understood who my father was, the beauty of what he had created. But then the feeling passed. I took a marker from the drawer and drew a thick black X on the lower right side of my chest. I lifted the straight razor off the counter. I did not hesitate. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.